And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. We're going live to the United Kingdom. Graham Phillips back with us, who was just with me several months ago as we talked about his latest work called Strange Fate, an extraordinary true story of paranormal discovery. Well, he's got a new one out called The Mystery of Doggerland, Atlantis in the North Sea. He's one of Britain's best-selling nonfiction authors for 40-plus years, has published at least 18 books worldwide. These include investigations into the death of Alexander the Great, The Secret Life of William Shakespeare, The Mystery of King Arthur. His books also cover his search for historical relics such as the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant, the Staff of Moses. Graham has been described as a historical detective, a modern-day adventurer, and a real-life Indiana Jones. Graham, I always love having you on the program. Welcome back. Oh, thanks, George. Great to be back on again. You think the Ark of the Covenant's in Ethiopia in that church, like everybody says? Well, the, the real weird thing about the Ark of the Covenant, there seems to have been two of them. There's one that's mentioned being made at Mount Sinai um, when Moses goes up the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments. That's eventually um, put into the Jerusalem Temple, which is, particular, which is specifically built to contain it. That's around about 1000 BC. Um, and then when Solomon, who has the temple built, dies... His two sons end up arguing with each other. The the kingdom breaks in two, and supposedly, according to the Ethiopian tradition, a one of the sons of Solomon had a um, an, a, a replica ark made, put into the temple in order to fool the, the the temple guardians that it was still there, and took the original one to Ethiopia. So there seems to be two arks. One seems to have ended up in Ethiopia. One then ends up uh, in the area around Petra, which is in Jordan, uh, in the Sinai wilderness, and um, both of them have vanished. (laughs) It's truly amazing. Now, your new book is called The Mystery of Doggerland. First of all, what is Doggerland? Well, it's the name of an area of dry land that once connects what's now the British Isles to continental Europe, France, Germany, and Scandinavia. Um, You probably know that uh, during the Ice Age, when sea levels were lower, um, there was a land bridge between America and, um, and what's now Russia. And this is where many people kind of crossed over that land bridge and began to colonize America. I mean, this is, you know, many thousands of years ago. Well, nothing quite so spectacular, but a smaller version of that joined the British Isles to continental Europe, and it remained above sea level as the the temperature gradually warmed after the end of the Ice Age. And there were still people living there um, who most archaeologists assume were just... uh, uh, hunter-gatherers, right the way through from around about 10,000 B.C. They were still there then. And then by about 7,000 B.C., the water levels had risen and um, the people who had lived there either drowned or managed to migrate somewhere else. But what's fascinating is is it's just been realized that because of the pressure of the ice that used to be over all of Britain, except for the very south, particularly over the north, the, the, the land was pushed downwards 
And then as the ice melted, it oh, gradually over thousands of years um, began to rise again, which meant that until around as recently as 5,000 years ago, part of this area of land that joined uh, Britain to the continent called Doggerland, um, a small island, um, perhaps about the size of um, the state of... Well, it's not quite large, actually, probably about the size of the state of... Um, uh, Rhode Island mm-hmm. still existed off the northeast coast of Scotland. That's what Doggerland is. Now, the North Sea, for a lot of people, I'll t- talk about the boundaries, lies between Great Britain, Denmark, Norway, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France. It's 600 miles long. It's 360 miles wide. It's a pretty good size, isn't it, Graham? Yes, it is. But the the... It's very difficult to know what people were actually doing there um, 10,000 years ago because that is quite now quite deep down below the, the surface of the, of the sea. But the area that didn't sink until about 5,000 uh, B.C., now that archaeologists have suddenly been able to map the, the, the floor of the sea with radar and sonar and other sophisticated instruments to find, astonishingly, that there are stone circles down there, like similar to Stonehenge, but at the bottom of the sea and very much older than Stonehenge. And it's beginning to look as though the people who eventually built Stonehenge around 3000 BC originally, they may have come from this island that sank. Interesting. How advanced might that civilization have been, Graham? Well, there's one tiny part of that civilization, that's, um, that island, that still survives above sea level, and that's a tiny little island called Fair Isle in the North Sea. And um, what's been discovered there by archaeologists is quite incredible. Firstly, they, everybody thinks that the pe- people in Finland invented the sauna around about 1,000 B.C., they found what must have been functioning saunas, you know, sauna baths, that are 7,000 years old on this island. That's pretty amazing to start off with. Secondly, they were able to build sea wall uh, defences where they put lots and lots of rocks in a great big pile in a great big um, long embankment. And then somehow, nobody quite knows how, they managed to get heat going on those stones, maybe by burning something around them when nobody knows quite what, to vitrify the stones. In other words, make them into a solid wall, melt stone. And really, you need incredibly high temperatures to do that. These people were able to do that, and the evidence is there. Amazing, truly amazing. Why do you think the island of the continent of Atlantis, Duggerland, disappeared what happened well it's basically what i explain in the book is that um the publishers decided to call it atlantis and the north sea not specifically because that was what plato in greek times referred to as atlantis Mm -hmm. but because it is one of many places throughout the world that sank beneath the waves at the end of the ice age now most people used to think that civilization began about uh, 5,000 years ago with, in the Middle East with the Sumerians and the ancient Egyptians and so on. 
Um, and before that, people were just living in tiny villages. There was nothing like civilization. But it is now known throughout the world, um, for after many years of archaeology, that there were proto-civilizations that had uh, cities that, um, with, with a, 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 as many as over a thousand people living in them that were built of mud bricks or even stone. I mean, this had been the discovery of places like Gebekli Tepe mm -hmm. in Turkey, which is like 12,000 years old, it seems now. And it seems that a lot, the, a lot of the places that began as proto-civilizations, perhaps shortly after the end of the Ice Age, say 12,000 years ago, were all along the coast, and the rising sea levels, was, um, they were sunk beneath the waves. So I looked throughout the world and found there was many different places where there were traditions of and archaeological discoveries of ancient civilizations similar to Plato's descriptions of Atlantis. So there may have been many, many Atlantis all over the world. Yeah, South America, North America, Europe, China, India, you name it. They've all got their legends of the same kind of thing. What happened to the inhabitants of most of these places? Were they able to get away? Well, in some places, the, uh, the, 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 the sea levels rose gradually over a period of many hundreds of years. They, they migrated, uh, like hopefully, the, if I'm right, the people who built Stonehenge had come from Dogoland. They had time to migrate. But in other places, when entire ice shelves collapsed into the sea um, and broke off huge parts of, of, of certain areas like uh, parts of Norway and parts of Newfoundland, um, this sent huge great uh, tsunamis across whole oceans and drowned people overnight. This is certainly what Atlantis, that this Plato describes, which was at the, uh, at the mouth of the Mediterranean. That seems to be what happened there. Tell us about some of the discoveries made by divers on the seabed uh, off uh, the north coast of Britain. Yeah, well, this is fascinating because a lot of this is still under wraps. Um, you know, they're not publishing a lot of what they've found at the moment because they don't want people diving out there and treasure hunting and wrecking the archaeology. But um, on mainland uh, Orkney Isles, which is at the top north of Scotland, there's a big stone circle um, about uh, a good few hundred feet across. It's, uh, it's made of, of it was originally made of about a hundred stones. Around it is a ditch and embankment and many other monuments around it, which has been dated as around about uh, four and a half to five thousand years old. Well, they found an identical one of these on the bottom of the sea, about two or three miles out from the coast. And that has been dated, basically by the amount that the sea level has risen since that time, as being at least 2,000 years older than what was thought to be the oldest stone circle in the British Isles on the Orkney Isles. That is truly remarkable. But uh, why do they keep it under wraps? Well, they don't want people... They, they, it got a lot of publicity when they first discovered this a few years back. And they had people going out there, diving down, thinking they were going to find treasures. But the, kind, the people that built these stone circles and uh, were, were, um, you know, at the time of Stonehenge and maybe before that weren't sort of making gold items or silver. They, they weren't creating things that would be treasure that you could sell to anyone. But this didn't stop people thinking there might be all sorts of things down there. 
So it's to stop people from destroying the, the, what they found before they can fully analyze it. How did you uncover this story, Graham? Well, I was actually at the time, I, was, um, I had a friend who was working on, um, on the original um, the, the boats that were going out. Originally, when they were scanning the, the seabed, they weren't looking for, um, these were scientists, not archaeologists, they weren't looking for some ancient civilization. They were simply looking for uh, buried obstacles in case there might be problems with laying um, uh, pipelines and various things out to um, gas and oil rigs in the North Sea. It was a completely, it wasn't archaeological at all. But then they found the, this, at least three separate stone circles, the one of the ones I've mentioned. And I knew somebody who was actually working with those scientists who said, this could be interesting to you. So that's how I got to know about it to start off with. Now, what about the possibilities that uh, the great flood of Noah might have been the catalyst for the sinking of these continents or islands? Well, it's certainly another one of these um, perhaps sunken early civilizations. Um, what is now known is that sometime around, I mean, the dating is, is, is difficult, but it could be about 8,000 years ago. Wow. What is now, or a little bit earlier, the, what is now the Black Sea was, in fact, um, low-lying area. And there was this um, barrier of land separating the Mediterranean, the eastern end of the Mediterranean, from the Black Sea. Um, and then, literally, as the gradual ice melted after the Ice Age and the Mediterranean kind of like became, the, the water levels grew higher, eventually it broke through this barrier that divided this low land to the, to the, to the east. And suddenly there was a waterfall and up and up Archaeologists and, his, and uh, scientists have described this waterfall as being something like a hundred times the size of the Niagara Falls, pouring over this Jeez. great embankment and filling the Black Sea and flooding anyone who lived there. That could be the Noah's flood. And Graham, are you convinced that the Atlantis that Plato talked about is different from the Doggerland that we're talking about tonight in your new work? Yes. Um, the Atlantis that uh, Plato refers to, he says quite specifically, is at the mouth or at the, um, at the what they call the Pillars of Hercules, which is the Strait of Gibraltar, which joins the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. And I've, I've actually been doing research into a place that completely matches what he described as being there and would have been sunk by an almighty tidal wave. Naya, four years ago you wrote a book called Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge. Is it possible that the creators of Stonehenge might have been these people who were on these islands that disappeared? Yeah, well, certainly the one of uh, Doggerland. That's the one I've done the most research into. I mean, there's, I mean, there's, it's a lot of work to look into Chinese myths and legends about uh, whole cities being flooded, and then looking into the same in India, and 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 but the Mayans describe the same kind of thing. Um, and again, it makes perfect sense. Early civilization started as um, as the Ice Age finished. Um, throughout the world, but they didn't get going before they started to get flooded 
um, by rising sea levels. And the, 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 certainly the, the one I concentrated on most was Doggerland, and the archaeology absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, um, proves that the people who built the stone circles and the, um, the large megalithic monuments in Britain, which include Stonehenge, and there was a lot of other uh, monuments similar to that, um, they definitely came from Doggerland, from this island that existed off the coast of Britain until about 5000 BC, because the stone circles that they built were exactly the same as those that have been found under the water. Could these events that happened so many years ago happen again today? Well, it's very controversial. I mean, when, when I, say, well, I, I say in my book about, um, you know, global warming, we're all experiencing it now. I mean, it's very controversial subject uh, about whether or not um, there is such a thing as global warming. Some people swear it's real. Some people swear it isn't. But what I do know for certain, and all scientists or anybody who investigated history does know that there was an ice age. And that ice age finished because somehow the Earth heated up. Precisely why it heated up is a complete mystery. Some people think it's because the Earth slightly changed its orbit around the sun. Others believe it had something to do with increased volcanic activity. There are many explanations about why the ice age may have occurred, but it did occur. It occurred and basically kept most of humanity in the tropical areas of, of the world. And after it finished, lots of people migrated north and started, and, and, and south, and the, uh, uh, migrated away from the, uh, from the tropics and um, began to start the first civilizations. And those civilizations hadn't really got going before there was further warming. Again, nobody knows quite why. Remaining ice is a lot further melted, and these civilizations ceased. If you believe in global warming, yes, it probably could happen again. If you don't, who knows? Well, that's a good point. Grant Phillips with us. His website is his name, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. We're talking about his latest work called The Mystery of Doggerland, Atlantis in the North Sea, even though he admits that there could be many, many different types of Atlantis all around the planet that all went down because of the great floods, because of ice ages, that melting ices and everything else. Now, back uh, earlier this year, you wrote a book called Strange Fate with Jody Russell. Let's talk a little bit about that, Graham, when we come back, okay? Okay. That's uh, the story of the strange fate, an extraordinary true story of paranormal discovery. And then in our last hour of the program, we open up the phone lines where you become part of the show. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie back with Graham Phillips as we've been talking about his latest work, The Mystery of Doggerland, Atlantis in the North Sea. He also wrote a book with Jody Russell called Strange Fate, An Extraordinary True Story of Paranormal Discovery. At that point, uh, Graham, you and Jody were looking for a secret society order called the Order of Meonia. Tell us about them. Well, it was fascinating because... During the 19th century, the mid-19th century, lots of different secret societies started up, like the Theosophical Society, the Golden Dawn. At the same time, you'd got the beginnings of spiritualism and psychical research 
And it all happened at pretty much the same time. But the very first people to start getting into all this were this group called the Order of Meonia or Meonia. I'm quite not sure quite how you pronounce it. Um, I'll say Meonia. That's how I've been used to saying it. Um, they started um, in the year 1851. What was weird about them compared to a lot of those other groups, the other groups were pretty much started by, well, they were all started by adults and people who had been studying the paranormal, the occult for years. The, this weird group was started by a seven-year-old girl. There was um, a tomb that stood on the estate of a Victorian mansion in central England, in Moorlands in central England, called Bidolph Grange, and there was this old burial mound there that um, seemed to be about 1,500 years old. To give that some kind of context, that's the period just after the Romans left Britain when the story of King Arthur is set. So that's the kind of period we're talking about, although the people who lived then didn't look very much like knights in shining armour. That was later. They looked more like Romans. But anyway, so there's this map burial mound this family that owned Bidolf Grange, the area, um, a family called the Batemans, and their business partners, another very rich family nearby called the Heath, decided to excavate this mound. Um, the, the reason being that the, the man, James Bateman, who owned the property, his cousin, Thomas, was an archaeologist, and he wanted to do this. While the excavation was going on, uh, there was, you know, people watching, there was children playing around. And the Heath families, their daughter, who was seven, um, called Mary Ann Heath, she suddenly went charging around the, uh, the, the burial mound and, and crawled inside it before anyone else had a chance to investigate. Oh, boy. And she came out like a different person. She... So she didn't change her personality so much, but she was suddenly able to start telling people things about themselves that they couldn't have known. In other words, she suddenly seems to have become psychic. She claimed that when she went inside this mound, she went into a, a strange, almost like fairyland, which, um, you know, is obviously the way the little girl's mind interpreted something happening to her. But she also came out having said she'd found this small stone heart about two inches wide and long, uh, carved from um, rose quartz, this heart-shaped stone that she'd found in this tomb. And um, people thought, well, that's it. This, is, this is strange. A lot of people didn't believe she'd suddenly become psychic until she then led her family and others to another um, old... Uh, monument on the land of the uh, the estate. This was a later building, uh, a medieval uh, chapel, and she said to them, it was a ruin, and she said, if you dig down there, you will find a stone slab, and if you uh, remove that stone slab, you go down underground, and you will find um, a crypt with, with, with things in it that are of great importance. And they kind of, eventually they, they did what she said, and she was dead right. They found in there, amongst other things, a number of Knights Templar graves, which um, the owners had moved to a nearby uh, still-used church, which was still consecrated ground. But most interestingly, they found a load of lead boxes, inside of which were all these papers and documents relating to, relating to ancient occult matters. 
that's how the author, me and I, got going with the inspiration of a seven, seven and a half year old girl. It's just weird. Now, tell us about this storm that popped down on all of you. Yeah, when Jodie and I decided, I mean, I've been looking into the, the mystery of this society for some years because in um, 1897, the, uh, the Bidolf Grange burnt down. That had been the headquarters of this group. And after that, I mean, a lot of them were getting older by this point and, 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 and didn't really have the energy after the place burnt down to keep the group going, so it disbanded. And the leader of the group by that point, I mean, Mary Heath, when she grew up, this little girl, became the leader for a while. But after she died, um, her sister-in-law, Laura Heath, became the head of it. And then finally, a fairly famous uh, painter, a woman by the name of Jane Morris. Um, If you must see pre-Raphaelite paintings, quite a lot of the, that she's modeled for a lot of them. So she was quite a famous person at the time. So around 1900, she was head of this group, and after the fire and a lot of their, uh, what, what they you know, found or what they used, what they did, the, the evidence was lost in this fire, and she said that she'd hidden this eye of firestone that somehow had given them some sort of power to alter fate in some way, and she said that she'd hidden this, and there was a series of paintings made of her by one of her friends, in which the clues were said to be that led to where this stone was. Well, no one had ever found it. I was interested in finding out quite a lot more about this group, but there's little to find out because so much had been lost in this fire. Eventually, Jodie and I decided to just visit this tomb where this little girl had had this experience, mm-hmm. where this, this heart of the roses, it was called, was found. And when we got there, I mean, it's, it's pretty much just a ruin now, but... When we got to this, uh, what remained of this burial mound, suddenly out of nowhere there was this almighty storm, not, not the sort you normally get in England, um, lightning, thunder, and it just came from nowhere. One minute it's bright sunshine, then suddenly this downpour happens. While this is going on, I mean, I'm filming this, and this kind of white sort of ball of light shoots out from where the tomb is and crosses a road and disappears into some bushes, um, the, the experts have looked at that and said it seems to be ball lightning, or although it might be some electrical effect onto the camera. But anyway, that happened. It lasted for five minutes, then it totally cleared up. When we went back, and this is when it gets, starts to get weird, when we went back to Bidolf Grange and were talking to people about the fire in 1897, they said, oh, no, 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 the fire was in 1896. And I could swear, and so could Jodie, that for years we'd been seeing 1897 as the year of the fire in books and everything. But now everything said it was 1896. It's almost as if we'd ended up in a different universe, and, and that was just the beginning. And it kept going on and on and on. You were also looking for an ancient artifact, weren't you? Yeah, that is this, um, this, this heart of the rose stone that this little girl had found that had been seemingly hidden by Jane Morris. When eventually we, um, we, we, we found out where these paintings were um, that um, had been left of this woman, Jane Morris, that seemed to have the clues in them, and um, I won't go into the whole story about what the clues were, but what was amazing is that as we were doing this, like people seemed to appear from nowhere and then disappear again. 
for example, when we were looking at one of these paintings, we were rather stuck as to what, what it meant. And suddenly this little old man, I mean, he literally looked very, very old in an ill-fitting black suit, appeared behind us, told us what we wanted to know, wandered into a crowd of people who were being shown around this manor house we were in. I followed him into a room that there was no way out of, and he, and he just vanished. And this happened a couple of times. He appeared again. We tried to follow him, and we couldn't find where he went. A woman um, appeared from nowhere, told us something, wandered into a gallery of a museum and seemed to vanish. Um, and and it, 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 the whole thing was just, well, I said the book, uh, an extraordinary story of paranormal discovery. I mean, weird things were happening, time shifts. Um, uh, 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 seemingly universe changes, people appearing from nowhere. On a couple of occasions, we managed to film what appeared to be Victorian figures, um, you know, wandering through old ruins when there was nobody there. And uh, ultimately, we found this stone. And when we found it, we managed to find this, uh, this cave where it, was, um, where, where it had been hidden. And while we were there, the, the, suddenly this storm happened again, just like on the first occasion when we started the search. That almost identical. The rain poured down so much that it was literally coming down the walls of the cave through a, a collapsed opening in the roof that actually washed out this stone that had been uh, left in a crevice up, up high on the wall, and it washed down to our feet. Literally, this heart of the rose stone ended up at our feet, brought down there by a freak rainstorm. Um, and that's how the story ended. It's, I mean, that's a very, very potted version of it, but you can tell that it was a, you know, why, why we called it a, a paranormal adventure or a story of paranormal discovery. Do you think you stumbled into a parallel universe or world? Well, at first of all, we thought it was something known in the, as the Mandela effect. I'm pretty sure you've discussed that yes, we have. in the past. Um, but about two weeks later, after we found that this date had changed and we'd convinced ourselves we'd just got it wrong, we went to see a house. It was a, a, an old place, and it was connected with the story. The, the reason being is a bit too much to go into at the moment. But we'd already been round this, and the guy who actually, uh, the manager of the property where this house was on, showed us round. It was an old place. It was semi-boarded up, but he could get in, and he took us round the inside. But he didn't have time to show us the cellars and everything. So he said, come back in a couple of weeks, and I'll show you around properly. So we'd phoned him up the day before, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, turn up, come on, come and see me. So we turned up, and this is the day after we'd had this storm at this, this tomb. Um, we went to see him, and he didn't know who we were. The two of us. He had no memory of us ever meet, meeting us before. And we just thought, oh, he's obviously he's, he's stepped outside his bounds by showing us around this place. Perhaps he shouldn't have done it. He's yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. forget about it. Cover but up for He was quite happy to show us this building again. But when we got there, it was totally boarded up, and it was clear that no one had been inside there for years. And when I showed him video footage of him showing us around inside the place, he got really freaked out, and, well, that was it. He wouldn't talk anymore. That's, if that's not under the universe, I don't know what it is. That is strange indeed. Indeed, indeed. And then you've, you've written, how many books do you have out, 18 plus? Well, I think, I think I've written, I don't know, actually. I've never counted. I think it's 18 <laughs> plus two others 
that I wrote under a pseudonym. So I think it's 20. The Holy Grail is supposed to be the chalice that Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper, right? That's right, yes. Where is it? Well, that particular one, I have no idea. The the thing is that, that what's fascinating is the very earliest stories of the Holy Grail don't have it as being the cup Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper that was supposedly brought to Britain by one of his followers, Joseph of Arimathea, The earliest legends say it was a cup, a small perfume jar used by Jesus' follower Mary Magdalene to collect a few drops of Christ's blood, either in some versions when he's on the cross, in others when she sees him risen in the tomb, and that's then brought to Britain. And as that's the original Grail story, being this cup of Mary Magdalene, I decided to look into what had happened with that. And there was a family called the Peverells who lived in a place called Whittington in, um, near Wales, in, 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 on the border between Wales and England. And they claimed, that there's all their writings, they claimed to have had this cup of Mary Magdalene, which they said was the Grail, in the um, 1100s, which is when the very first Grail stories started to appear in romantic novels. So I thought, let's see what happened to this. It turned out that some guy in the mid-19th century, again, we're going back to the the 1850s, um, a man called Thomas Wright was the actual last descendant or direct descendant of these people who had claimed to have the grail because he had no children to hand it on to. He hid this thing and left a a series of clues to where it was, including this big stained-glass window he had put in this church, and I followed these clues and eventually discovered where it had been hidden in an old statue, but it had been found by some, some um, workmen in the 1920s whose family still had it in their loft, in their attic. So it turned out to be like this small egg-cup-shaped egg uh, green alabaster stone cup. I took it to the British Museum, and they immediately identified it as a Roman-style scent jar, perhaps 200 years old, sorry, 2,000 years old, and the uh, alabaster it was made from came from the area of Palestine. So it was the right period. I mean, whether this cup really did belong to Mary Magdalene and um, started the whole Grail legend, I don't know. But basically, um, the people who own this really didn't think it was, was worth anything. They didn't have any interest in keeping it. They let me have it, and I've got it in a bank vault at the moment. That's amazing. Where do people get your books, Graham? Amazon? Well, the, the, the Strange Fate, only available on Amazon, but Strange Fate on Amazon. All the rest of them, um, from the publishers, which is in the traditions. Or, but my website is grahamphillips.net. You just go there. There's the links to everything you need to know. All right, we're going to come back in a moment, Graham, and take phone calls with you right here on Coast to Coast AM. You've heard what we've been talking about, so jump aboard and ask him a question.